Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And the church said, Amen. Amen. I want to put a tag on this message today. Live on earth like a citizen of heaven. Live on earth like a citizen of heaven. There's two ways to become a citizen of the United States. The first is by birth. Is if you're born in the U.S. or one of its territories or if your parents were citizens at the time of your birth. According to the Guide to Naturalization from the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, those are ways that qualify you for citizenship by birth. The second way is through the process of naturalization. And it's a process. Uh, For over 90% of the applicants, the process is this. You must be a lawful, permanent resident, and that means you've got to possess what they call a green card. You must be a lawful, permanent resident for five years. You've got to show good moral character. You have to pass a civics exam. You have to express allegiance to the United States Constitution. That's all. Of course, the question is, how do you become a lawful permanent resident? That's a process. And uh, time does not permit me to explore that. But at the end of the process is a naturalization ceremony where one becomes a citizen. Citizenship by birth, citizenship by naturalization. Uh, U.S. citizens are granted rights under the Constitution. Um, U.S. citizens, you can get a passport, you can get a federal job, you can vote, you can travel unhindered across the United States and, and its territories, you can serve in an elected post. Those are rights. There are also responsibilities. You have to give up all prior allegiance to any other nation or sovereignty. You have to swear allegiance to the United States. You must support and defend the Constitution and the laws of the United States. And then you've got to serve the country when required. And other responsibilities would include like jury duty and voting. So voting is a a right, it's also a responsibility. So under naturalization, you earn your citizenship. And then you, you become a citizen. That is, you behave before you become. Under citizenship by birth, you become at birth, And then pursue the process of behaving in a way that reflects the reality of your citizenship. 
citizenship by birth, citizenship by naturalization. That's my civics lesson for us today. Okay. You may wonder, what's that about, Pastor? Glad you asked. Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. And I'll read through chapter 2, verse 4. While you're turning there, I'll give you a reminder of our context. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church at Philippi. And in the first several verses, Paul gushes over this church. He misses them. He tells them he's praying for them. And then, in verse 12, he updates them on his situation as a prisoner of Rome. Paul is in chains of the gospel. But Paul says that while he is in chains, the gospel is not in chains. Paul says, look, I'm fine. I know you're concerned about me. I'm fine. The gospel's making progress. I'm preaching to Roman praetorian guards. They're going back and sharing the message where they are. The gospel is all throughout Caesar's household. It's wonderful. That's my progress. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Now, enough about me. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about your progress. And these verses that I'm about to read, they, they, they carry critically important instructions to the Philippians for their progress in the gospel. And Paul uses a civics word that would just have resonated with the church at Philippi. And I want you to listen for this word as I read it, because we're going to talk about it and then its implications. Philippians 1, verse 27. Hear these words from the word. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have, so, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. Did you hear that civics word? Well, I want to talk about that word this morning. Um, and here's the trajectory. It's very familiar to us. What? So what? Now what? You got it. What, what is this word from civics that Paul uses? We're going to talk about that. Then what's the significance of it? What's the significance of what he says? And then... Thirdly, now what? What's the take home for us? What, so what, now what? Let's get to work. First, the what. Paul instructs the Philippians that the only thing that matters is behavior worthy of our heavenly citizenship. And that, that's verse 27. I mean, I mean Paul gave, gave the big idea away in the first verse. You don't have to go hunting for it. He said, the verse, verse 27 says, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Now, now most translations, uh, including the ESV, have in the main body phrases like, let your conduct or let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And, and while those phrases kind of get at Paul's meaning, they really miss the word picture, which would have emotionally connected to the Philippians. And it's the word picture, behave as citizens. And it's a really difficult word to bring into the English language because it's just, it's just really packed. Um, and here's the word, here's the word, here's the word. It's the word polichuo, polichuo, polichuo. What's that sound like? Political. Politics. See, our English word, political or politics, comes from this word polichuo. Political, politics, polis, city. City. Uh, or in the ancient world, city-state. So, so, in other words, there's customs and norms and standards for citizens of a city-state. Well, we use the word politics for holding office or adherence to, you know, a, a political theory, a way of doing government, etc. But Paul uses it in its most unadorned sense. The homeland has a way of life which its citizens are expected to embrace and to live out and to embody. Oh, look how they live. Well, we know where they're from. And that's the point of the verb. Behave as citizens. Which, of course, this prompts the question, which homeland? Which homeland is Paul speaking about here? Is Paul saying that the gospel was meant to make the Philippians better citizens of Rome? Is that what he means? Oh, you need only look at chapter 3, verse 20, to see how Paul uses the word citizenship. You see that? Just turn the page over. 
chapter 3, verse 20 says, but our citizenship is in, so that's the same word, it's only the noun form. But our citizenship is in heaven. So Paul's talking about heavenly citizenship. He's talking about reflecting the reality of your heavenly citizenship. Paul says, live on earth as a citizen of heaven. This word polichuo, it only shows up three times in the New Testament. Twice it appears here in Philippians, and then one other time Paul uses it uh, in Acts 23, verse 1. Polichuo, live as a citizen of heaven. Let your life reflect the reality of your citizenship in the kingdom of God. Now, why does Paul use this word? Well, remember his audience. Philippi was a Roman colony, and as such, it was a coveted prize of the empire. And that meant that certain residents of Philippi were counted as Roman citizens. And their names were on the rolls at Rome. Their legal situation was privileged as if they were in the capital of Rome itself. So Philippi was a homeland in miniature. It looked Roman. It had Latin inscriptions, temples to Roman emperors. Philippi was historic in Roman history. It was the last battle in which the Roman Republic became the Roman Empire, in which Augustus ruled and the Pax Romana began, the peace of Rome. My goodness. So when travelers took the Ignatian Way uh, from the eastern part of the empire to the west, they would have to go through Philippi. And then, you know, they're travelers. You know, they can't go 75 miles an hour. They're walking and they're taking a horse or a wagon. And so they're in Hellenistic territory. They're in Greece, I mean, for a long time, man. And it's Greek this and Greek that and Greek food and Greek signage and Greek language. You talk about culture fatigue. Then came Philippi. Ah, Philippi is a taste of Rome. The Ignatian Way cut right through town. They'd been through all things Greek and suddenly this very Roman-looking community appears. And that was a sign. The sign was they weren't far from their ultimate destination. They had to keep traveling. But they got a taste of Rome before they got to Rome. Ah, Philippi. When Sarah and I travel to Tulsa, it's a nine-hour trip. And we can go 75 miles an hour. And we're all in Missouri. We're halfway. There's a barbecue place that we like there. But we still have halfway to go. But, you know, you're getting tired. And six hours into the trip, three hours away from Tulsa is Springfield, Missouri. Oh, Springfield, Missouri. In Springfield, Missouri is Brahms. Yeah. 
Brahms is a hamburger and ice cream store. <laughs> There's 300 Brahms in the Brahms Empire. And Brahms' headquarters is in Oklahoma. The easternmost reach of the Brahms Empire is Springfield. <laughs> so when we go to Brahms, oh man, you can enjoy a thirst-quenching, refreshing cherry limeade. Medium cherry limeade, light on the ice. Amen. <laughs> and I order a medium instead of a large because a medium they serve it in a, you know, in a paper cup. Large is styrofoam. And it just doesn't taste as good in styrofoam as this medium cherry limeade. They serve it with, they serve it with limes. They, they, I mean, they squeeze the limes right there. And then they, 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 they leave the limes in the cup and, and, and they give it to you. And, and so, you, you know, and I, I don't do a straw. No, 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 no. So I just sip it. And, of course, you know, the, 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 the limes are floating there at the very top. And they've been, they've been baptized in this, <laughs> this cherry limeade. And, and so, and, and, it's, and they use carbonated water. And it's fizzy a little bit, and and so and and so and so it's a little sour at first, and then fizzy, uh, and, but then as the and then the as the ice melts, because it's light on the ice, you know, as the as the ice melts, you get to the bottom, and folks, it's all syrup. <laughs> mm. and, and 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 as it smoothly flows down my throat. As I'm driving down I-44 east to Tulsa, I'm thinking, I'm almost home. I'm almost Brahms is an embassy of Oklahoma. <laughs> Paul uses this word, polichuo, and he wants the believers at Philippi, and I think it's for us too. He wants us to understand that when people come into this space, this space, when we sing together, when we pray together, when we have conversation out in the foyer together, when we serve together, these spiritual activities are intended to offer a taste to our guests that we are an outpost of heaven. That's our vision, church. We exist to display what heaven will be like. You've come here, you've met with God, you've met with citizens of heaven, you've tasted heaven, and you're not far from home. Church, this is our calling. Does your life, does our life, reflect the reality of our heavenly citizenship. It must. It must. It's all that matters. Notice that Paul begins our text with this very important word. You see it there in verse 27? It's the first word. Only. Only. 
meaning there's nothing else. Don't pass over that word too quickly. This is the only thing that matters. So, so here we're given the big idea not only of this section, but of the entire book of Philippians. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul did not preach the gospel so that the Philippians would become better Romans. And Christianity is not primarily about making us better Americans. Rather, it's about living out the reality of our heavenly citizenship wherever God has us on earth. So whether the Philippians see Paul again or not, whether Paul lives or dies, no matter what happens, if you forget everything else, don't forget this. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's it, folks. Worthy. What do we mean by that? It means this. I value Jesus more than you fill in the blank. Man, I want to lean into this here. At my annual review with the elders just before Christmas, the elders asked me in, if I would in 2024 offer biblical teaching throughout the year to help us think clearly and scripturally about the social-political challenges in our world along with the challenges in the post-pandemic era. And this text is a good place to start that conversation. Paul's wisdom is this. Only keep your heavenly citizenship primary. Amen. Value your heavenly citizenship above all. Amen. So what will I look like if that happens? Oh, turn to Philippians chapter 4. Verse 6, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. Anything? Anything. Anything, church. Even politics. Paul's prescription for political anxiety is unwavering trust in the resurrected Son of God. It's unflinching confidence that our citizenship in heaven will endure any and every kingdom. Including the country I love very much, the United States. And man, see the temptation is to elevate these other identities to the level of our primary identity. And the moment we do that, we've diluted our primary identity. Do not be anxious about anything. Only keep your heavenly citizenship primary. Please, please hear these words from the apostle. And I think it's really important because of what Paul does here. He does not start with conduct. He starts with identity. He says, you are a citizen of heaven. Not by virtue of your merits, 
but by virtue of Christ's merits, Christ's life, Christ's deeds, Christ's righteousness. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 promises us that the very righteousness of the sinless, pure, holy, crucified, buried, resurrected Son of God is ours through faith. No one here earns their heavenly citizenship. It's granted by grace through faith in Christ. Once granted by grace through faith in Christ, now the instruction is live like the citizen. Conduct is the outcome of certain things that you have believed. This may surprise you, but the New Testament, hear me now, the New Testament is uninterested in conduct and behavior in and of itself. I mean, that, that's the point of Philippians 3, verses 1 through 10. <laughs> David Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor in Britain in the 20th century. He, he argues that the New Testament does not make an appeal for good behavior to anybody except those who are already citizens of heaven. He says the fact is the New Testament is not interested in the morality of the world because this world is sinful, broken, and fallen. The Bible says that you know, man's sin is the problem. And so, so we're the problem. When the problem tries to solve the problem, that's a problem. So we should never expect someone to act like a believer until they become one. So by God's grace, though, we've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness, and he has granted us citizenship in Christ's kingdom of light. Now, only behave as citizens worthy of heaven. That, that's Paul's word here. That's the what. Now, why is this so important? Why is this identity so significant for us? What's so important about understanding and owning the reality of our heavenly citizenship? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 29. He says, for, so, so he says, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he says, for, or because, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, so both faith in Christ and suffering for the sake of Christ are benefits of our heavenly citizenship. And if you don't mind me taking a little excursion in Greek here, let me do this. This is powerful. So there's two words for give. There's the word didomai, and then there's the word karitzomai. Now, I can didomai you punch in the nose, okay? But I can't karitzomai you. 
because karitzomai means to give graciously. To give love. You, you can't give graciously someone a punch in the nose. That doesn't work. Paul says, it has been karitzomai you not only to believe, but to suffer. You said you wanted to be like Christ, didn't you? That's part of the package. That's part of the package. And it's a package of grace from God through Christ to us. Paul says in verse 30, do you remember what they did to me when I was there with you? Remember what they did to me? Read the book of Acts and you'll figure it out. Acts 16. Paul says, what do you think they're going to do to you? The Christians there in Philippi were less than 1% of the population. So that area was about 15,000. And at most, there were 100 believers. At most, 15,000 to 100, maybe. <laughs> Talk about being outnumbered. The, the dominant culture in any given context likes its dominance. And it likes to flex its political or cultural muscle. And it may move against the heavenly outpost in that place. Why? Because we don't play their game, that's why. The church of Christ makes counterclaims of a different power. We have different priorities. We have a different mission. We take orders from a different emperor. And this will lead to conflict, church. And if you do not remember who you are, then you're going to misinterpret your suffering. Suffering, Paul says, for the sake of Christ, is not random. It is part of God's graciousness to us because we have chosen to follow Jesus. Paul says with the gift of citizenship comes the gift of suffering. For suffering on behalf of Christ is the pathway to fellowship with Christ. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and share in His sufferings. Share in His sufferings. That's the phrase fellowship, koinonia, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. That's what's going on in Philippi church. And the kind of suffering they were experiencing was, was um, mainly financial suffering. They were losing clients. They were losing customers. They were losing accounts. Why? Because we don't go to their bloody, violent, gladiatorial games. We don't attend their pagan temples to offer a sacrifice to Nero. We don't go to their lewd pornographic shows. We can't. Our allegiance is to Jesus. We're not going to let the fear of man dominate us. We will stand firm together with arms locked together looking to Christ together. And that's what we see in verses 27 and 28. You see the phrase standing firm and striving side by side. Those are actually military terms. Philippi had a history of military resonance. And so Paul's talking their language. 
He says, I want you to hold your ground and advance together like a legion. When the legions would make war, they'd take long shields and they would form this, this, this tortoise formation. And they stayed together, forming an impenetrable wall as they progressed. Your striving for the faith of the gospel will not exactly be like everyone else's. So don't be paralyzed in your imagination by comparing yourself with others. For some of you, your striving will involve one of the ministries here at the church, the food pantry, our children's ministry, student ministries, guest services, small group leadership, taking in one of our missions trips. It may involve service out in the community, mentoring students, involvement in our schools, hospital visitation, prison visitation, writing letters. Again, Lisa and Michelle's class will offer ideas. God wills for us to strive for the faith of the gospel. And that requires us doing something with effort and discipline and endurance to promote the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And in that very moment, church, as the Christian community locks arms, suffering together, standing together, striving side by side, that this, this, this new community of slaves, free, farmers, elite, artisans, men, women, children, Romans, Greeks, Thracians, Macedonians, this remarkably multi-ethnic, multi-generational congregation will experience something that the caste system of the Roman culture can never offer. And that's a taste of heaven. And that, friends, is joy. Joy is not a life absent suffering. Joy is the outcome of suffering for the sake of Christ. And Paul says your unintimidated solidarity is a sign. Look at verse 28. It's a sign to them of their destruction, but your salvation and that from God. Why? Well, here's why. It's because Nero, who fashions himself a god, has finally run into people who are not threatened by loss, not threatened by death. They don't fold. They don't collapse. This, this little god has come up against citizens of the one true God. And our fearless trust in Christ is a sign from God that we have been rescued and they can't win. Thanks be to God. So how do we live in the reality of Christ's victory? Well, that gets us this third question. Now what? What will help us live as citizens of heaven, united and unintimidated for the glory of Christ? What, what's it take to be united? Well, this is where we jump into chapter 2. And, and Paul says this. Here it is. Complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Uh, Paul says, you want to make me happy? You're concerned about me in prison. What can we do for you, Paul? What can we do for you? Well, thank you for the monetary gift from Epaphroditus, Paul says. He thanks him for that in chapter 4. And I just thank God for giving so much through you. But it, he says, if you really want to really make me happy, 
okay? If you really want to make you happy, have humility rooted unity. That's what will make me happy. That's what will make me happy. Oh, man. I read that, and I thought, wow. You know, last week when I was preaching in my Batman voice, <laughs> you know, I asked someone to come get me, go get me some water, and, and you know, Jason came back and took care of me, and, and, uh, and then I, this is how I know you love me. At the beginning of second service, I go up here in this front row, there's four bottles of water. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. You want to know, you want to know what will really make me happy? Well, how do you really love your pastor? Here it is. It's the same way that Paul wants the Philippians to love him. Every member of the congregation, each and every one, should take personal responsibility for attending to the concerns of others in the congregation. That, man, that, that'll, get me a, that'll get me multiple nights of all night sleep. Verse 4 says, look to. It means be focused, be attentive. Don't be distracted. Paul, Paul addresses our temptation to be consumed constantly with our own needs and agendas. I mean, this is hard. Because the, the Philippians, are, they're facing pressure from the outside. And yet there were some cracks in the community. Why, in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul's got to call out two members by name. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. I mean, it rose to that level. And of course, you know, if these two aren't getting along, I'm sure they've got their factions that are supporting their side. So it's bigger than the two of them. Paul says, you're a heavenly outpost. You need to shore up your love for one another for the sake of the gospel. Humility is more about how I treat others than how I think about myself. I mentioned George Guthrie last week in his commentary on Philippians. He told another story about his ministry among Jewish and Arab believers in Israel. He said that two members of the group traveled to the U.S. for a series of meetings years ago and they agreed to speak to students at a university. So in chapel, these Christian brothers, one Jewish and one Arab, they stood side by side and they explained to the campus community how the gospel breaks down unimaginable social barriers. The Jewish brother spoke on the topic, why God loves the Arabs. The Arab brother spoke on the topic, why God loves the Jews. And it was a powerful experience as these two demonstrated that their heavenly citizenship in Christ was sovereign over every other identity. They, it, they didn't tolerate each other. They celebrated one another out of love. They considered not only their own interests, but the interests of others. Can you feel what these verses are doing? They're encouraging us to keep believing, keep trusting, keep serving, keep climbing, Keep moving in a world strife with ambition amidst ladder chasers and glory junkies. The central th thrust of this text is courageous confidence that withstands suffering and selfless humility that fosters unity. 
It's a unity grounded in the shared experience of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a unity that takes the form of humility. And it's a humility that prioritizes others over self. It's a humility in the likeness of the one King, Jesus, who was truly glorious. And yet he humbled himself to redeem his people through the most shameful death imaginable. So church, let's stand together for Christ as we are selflessly united in Christ. That's what it means to behave in a way that conforms to our heavenly citizenship. Let's live in a way so that it's obvious to the world that we're different. That it's obvious that we worship the one true God. That living is Christ and dying is gain. That's what it means to behave as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for conferring upon us a citizenship that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. Thank you for rendering us your love. Thank you that we get a taste of heaven in this congregational life. And thank you that you give us the privilege of being a taste of heaven to our community. We love you. In Jesus' name, and the church said.